and welcome to the Star Wars Saga Cast. My name is John Wilson, and this is episode 12 of the show, where I'll be talking about issue 4 of Pizzazz from Marvel Comics, and also issue 10 of Star Wars from Marvel Comics. Now, if you are new to the show, I will just remind you that Pizzazz is a magazine that Marvel was publishing in the late 70s that had a brief Star Wars strip in it. So I've been covering the installments of that story very briefly before I go into the main feature of the Star Wars comic from Marvel. And the issue that I have in front of me right now has Spider-Man raising a glass surrounded by, well, all sorts of pop culture icons from television. The Incredible Hulk is next to him, and so is Thor, because they have both been on TV recently. Well, I say Thor has. Thor is in a Hulk movie special, and I'm pretty sure that's actually several years down the road. So I'm not sure why he is included on the cover if we're going for TV icons. We do have the Fonz, and, you know... I <laughs> I was not alive in 1978. I don't know who most of these people are. It's very obvious that they're uh, supposed to be celebrity personalities, but I just really have no idea. So I'm not going to try and embarrass myself, but if you want to look at the cover and play Guess That Face, then just do a Google search image for Pizzazz number four, and I'm sure you'll find it. As usual, I'm going to skip all of the non-relevant matter and skip right to Star Wars, continuing the adventures of characters from the science fantasy film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. And this installment's entitled A Matter of Monsters. The story so far has Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, and Luke's two droids space-wrecked on what they first thought was an uninhabited planet. And this is written by Roy Thomas, with art by Howard Chaikin and Tony Dezeniga. The giant footprints have already shown them that this uninhabited planet is actually not so uninhabited, but the real thing is even more frightening as they are attacked by some sort of three-eyed, hulking, bestial form from the forest. Luke figures that all animals must be afraid of fire, however, this one is not stopping. So Luke and Leia break out the blasters. Now, notice that Luke does not have his lightsaber handy. Of course, they were just sitting around a campfire, so he might have stowed it somewhere, not expecting to use it. But the huge monster does grab Luke in one of its hands, and so Leia has to be a bit of a sharpshooter to hit the hand at just the right place, hoping all the while that it drops Luke instead of squeezing him to death. She does succeed and it does drop Luke, and while they're still trying to blast it away, R2-D2 wanders off to try to find some way to help his masters, and he finds a much larger version of the same species. Now, the monster that's going after Luke and Leia, I'd say is probably three times the height of Luke, and this version is easily several times larger. So, what does R2 do with this huge monster? It goes right up to its, um, see, the, the monster is sleeping. I forgot to say that. The monster is sleeping on the ground, leaned up against a hill, so it's big bear feet are out there for anyone to come by and tickle, and that's basically what R2 does. Using one of his little inbuilt lasers, R2 basically gives the monster a hot foot, and what does the monster do when it wakes up? 
it sees what basically amounts to its child running off after two little creatures hardly big enough to make a meal. So it reaches down, picks up the mini monster, and carries it off. Because what else is a mother to do? And where were you all this time, R2? Hiding, no doubt. Blurp. R2, of course, did save the day, but he gets no love from C-3PO. And remember the Empire? Remember how they're kind of after these guys? Well, just then, Luke and Leia look up in the sky, and they see a TIE fighter coming down from orbit. We've just been spotted by a fighter craft from the Imperial fleet. Continued next issue. You know, I have another podcast that I do called Golden Age Superman, and Superman had a newspaper strip that ran for years and years and years. And although I have read a good deal of Superman comic books, I have not read very much of the Superman newspaper strips. And whenever I first started getting into them, back whenever I was doing this show more regularly, it was a rather large surprise to me how different the storytelling format was when you have such a small space to tell the chapters of your story. So a A newspaper strip is, of course, a daily strip, and you had four panels to tell your story. And in four panels, the idea is that the plot has to get moved forward, and you also have to end at an interesting point that will make the reader come back the next day and read more of the strip. I bring that up because as I'm reading these little serial installments in Pizzazz, it is very different from reading a comic book because a comic book has some 17 to 22 pages to tell its chapter of the story. You get a lot of story done. Whereas the Pizzazz, they have four pages to do their Star Wars story justice for that month. And it's just a very different style of storytelling. So we're getting one big dramatic beat followed by a cliffhanger and it's all very action-oriented. There's not a whole lot of character moments going on here. So it's just very different. I'm not saying that I don't like it or that I do like it yet because we've only had four installments. I'm hoping that after a few more chapters, we'll come to the end of a particular plot line and I can look back and say, okay, well, this is what we've had happen and this is how I feel about it. So as of right now, I'm just going to say this was our monthly installment. Now let's look at Star Wars issue number 10 because Star Wars issue number 10 from Marvel has Han Solo shooting a large green creature. And the cover image almost looks unfinished just because the um, the portion of the creature that we see is not very, uh, what's the good word I'm looking for, representational of what the creature looks like. We don't get like a complete image of its face or whatever, just its maw and its hand. And Han Solo's shouting, keep firing, Chewie, or this whole planet is doomed, not to mention us. And Chewbacca has some sort of laser rifle with like prongs coming out of the side of it. So it looks like it should have three blaster points, but it doesn't. It just has the one. I don't know. It's kind of strange. And there's a caption at the bottom that says the behemoth from below. And I can't tell if this is a different comic artist we've had before. And Chewbacca's face is not toward the camera very well. But what we do see of Chewbacca's face looks much different than what we had last time. And I'm hoping that we're going to leave behind that weird rat-faced weasel design we had the last couple of issues. Because that just did not do anybody any favors. Okay, Stanley presents Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of all, continuing the saga begun in the film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. Behemoth from the world below. You know, Han Solo's job seemed simple enough. 
get together a band of alien warriors, and save a village from the outlaw Sergi X Aragontis and his marauding cloud riders. But in the original deal, no one said anything about a monster. We have Don Glutt as the scriptwriter and Howard Chaikin as the artist and co-plotter. No Roy Thomas, more on that later. Tom Palmer as the co-artist and embellisher. Alan Kupperberg as the layouts, which means one of two things. Either he went through and did all the initial sketches of how each panel is going to look as far as character positioning and that sort of thing, the very basic layout of the image, or less likely... I only mention it because he's being listed well after the other artists. It could be that he actually, like a layout is all the panels arranged on a page, like physically piecing together the comic, but they don't actually usually give that person any credit in the credits box. So I'm going to go with the idea that Howard Chaikin actually, that the the artist actually had three stages here. Alan Kupperberg plotted out the issue as far as, each panel and where the characters were going to be laid on the picture. Then Howard Chaikin came in and actually drew them and made them look like people instead of like stick figures and box images or whatever. And then Tom Palmer came along, helped with the art and did the inking afterward. It's a very um, Rube Goldberg way of going about getting a comic done. But hey, when you got to get it done, you got to get it done. F. Mooley, whoever F is, I don't know. His last name is Mooley is the colorist, and Jay Costanza is the letterer. Roy Thomas is still listed, but only as the editor and the co-plotter. So he helped come up with the story, but he didn't actually write any of the words. And that would make sense because as the person who came up with the story for the first several parts of this plot, it would only make sense that he helped have input on how it all is going to resolve, which I think is this issue. I think we're going to have the resolution here, although of course I could be wrong. Let's find out. There is a monster coming out of the ground. Remember the shaman from last issue, the shaman of this village that they're trying to save, has told Han Solo that all of his blaster buddies aren't going to really be the big help they want to be, and so he's going to go summon a force, and he summons this huge monster coming out of the ground. In the meantime, there are a bunch of bad guys on sky speeders flying around. They are the cloud riders, and everything is just chaotic. Evidently, this monster is the source of several legends because Sergi X remembers hearing stories about it when he was a kid. And so he decides to call his cloud riders to attack it because if they don't, according to the stories, it's not going anywhere. And so they're never going to get their yearly tribute anymore. They're never going to get their female amusements, as he calls them, anymore. And so they start attacking the monster. Han Solo is happy to notice that the monster is only attacking the Cloud Riders in return and completely ignoring Han Solo and his, um, I forget what he called them, his sprites or something, his space warriors, I forget what he called them. There were, there were a few different names he used. There's no real name for this team, but all of them, I like the, the, the space misfits. That's what we're going to call them. I'm going to call them the Space Misfits because we have a porcupine guy, a walking rabbit, a boy with his droid, Don Quixote in Jedi form, and a stripper girl. So, yeah, the Space Misfits. Han Solo and the Space Misfits. It's like a terrible band or something. I don't know. The monster pulls down an avalanche on the Skyriders, but that doesn't stop Sergiex's insane lust for Mary the young girl that Han Solo has also taken a liking to. 
And when he realizes the attack is costing him most of his men, he looks around and finds the shaman down on the ground, waving his arms around like he's controlling the beast. And so he starts a nosedive down to kill the shaman. If if he can kill the shaman, he can take care of the monster. Then he can get his hands on the girl and go off and continue to be a bad guy with the twirling mustaches and all the power. Yeah, that'll be the ticket. So he flies down there. However, the shaman doesn't move. And both he and the outlaw chief are trampled by a single gargantuan foot. And without their leader, the few remaining cloud riders are quick to fall. So the bad guys lose. And I would almost think this was intentional, except for one thing. If the shaman really wanted to save his village then why did he give his own life in the process? Because he was controlling this creature, and now that he's dead, there's no one left to control it. And so it could go on a rampage and destroy the entire village, which is what Jim, the Starkiller Kid, points out to Han Solo in the Space Misfits. However, going up against a monster is not exactly what some of them had in mind. And when Mary voices this complaint, Han Solo loses it. Listen to me, all of you space freaks. We didn't earn the pay we're getting for this job. The behemoth did. Hmph. Some pay. That's Amaza there. And Han Solo replies, And if you want to get even that, there'd better be a village left standing to pay us. Besides, I'm getting to like some of the local folk in this town. Which, I don't really remember him getting to know many of the local folk except for one. And Jackson seems to have the same idea because he retorts, All right, all right, already. So we know you're a little soft on that merry female. And Jackson grabs his blaster and heads out to start shooting the monster. One thing I may have forgotten to say by this point, though, is that the monster himself has some sort of energy blast that it can launch from its own head, which is one of the things it was attacking the Cloud Riders with. And it starts turning these energy blasts on the rampaging rabbit. But just whenever a blasted free boulder is about to hit the rabbit, Amaza jumps forward and knocks him out of the way. Now, Jackson thinks he's, you know, being a little sarcastic, wondering if maybe he's hearing some affection from Amaza. We don't really get a response from the girl at this point, but I do want to take this time to point out that I find Jackson, okay, completely forgiving his appearance and just talking about the fact that, you know, he's a character in the comic. He is really obnoxious, constantly trying to be sarcastic and witty and snarky. That's what it is. He is the guy in the group who's constantly snarking off about everything, never saying anything straight, but always trying to bring things down with with what he has to say. So yeah, I... I don't mind Jackson at all as a character, but I really don't care much for him as a person, if that makes sense. So before the rocks start falling, Han Solo tries to get together a battle plan. He was trying to gather the forces of his team. However, while he's shouting orders, Don Juan Quixote sneaks off on his own. Indeed, they'd be fools to think that such a dragon might be slain by their crude methods, for it requires the skills of one trained in the Holy Order of the Jedi Knights. When I read this issue the first time several years ago, I noticed how elaborately and exaltedly Don Juan Quixote describes the Jedi Knights, the Holy Order of the Jedi Knights. You know, it's like this hugely special thing that must be spoken with reverence. And at the time, I thought that it just, you know, was a combination of an old guy's senility and the fact that, you know, in early versions of the Star Wars history, there might be this idea that the Jedi were this exalted form of people that are no longer around. 
now having read the Don Quixote story and having <laughs> in that story, Don Quixote loves the genre of adventure night fiction, which they call caballeros. He loves caballeros and he gets the idea as an old man that he is going off to be a caballero. And in his mind, there is absolutely nothing more worthwhile that could possibly be done in the world than to go out and save, have adventures and save women and all these other things. And so he's always talking very exaltedly about the caballeros. And so Don Juan Quixote here is just simply emulating all that. I give Roy Thomas huge props for the literary reference because he's doing a great job with it. And what at first I thought to be a kind of obnoxious character, yeah, he might still be obnoxious, but at least I get the reference now. So it's kind of neat. So while Don Juan sneaks off, the Space Misfits and Han Solo and Chewbacca are doing their best to hide from the ray blasts from the monster. They hide behind one rock wall only to have it avalanche down and crumble on top of them because it gets blasted from the other side. And that's when Han Solo realizes that Don Juan is no longer with them. I'm getting an idea how he might get rid of that nightmare, but it's going to take Don Juan's lightsaber to do it. You hear me, Don Juan? You never told how you got a Jedi Knight's weapon, but it's still... <gasps> Don Juan? Oh no, look, we've got to go help him! And before we find out exactly what Don Juan's going to do, we change our scene to Leia Organa. She has flown from the fourth satellite of the planet Yavin to be swallowed by silent space on a mission to find Luke Skywalker, who went off to go find a new location for the rebel base, but whose communication was cut off last issue whenever he radioed back to tell them about it. However, the page doesn't give us any information except it's basically checking in with her to remind the reader of what's going on. She's on a ship heading that direction, and we're back with the fight. Don Juan has snuck all the way around behind the creature, so he's opposite the creature from the space misfits, and he shouts, Hold, Behemoth, and if you dare, face me. And whether it's the sound of the old man's voice or the pulsating weapon that he holds, something attracts the Behemoth's attention. All of our friends are appropriately horrified at the turn of events because they don't think that Don Juan has much chance of survival. However, Han Solo has a hunch that the monster's reacting funny the closer he gets to that lightsaber. I think my hunch is right. I think it's... But before he can complete the thought, he notices that Hedgy, the Spiner, has already rushed out to help Don Juan Quixote. The old man's doing a pretty good job of dodging the laser blasts, but Hedgy doesn't think he can do it for much longer, so he shoots several of his spines onto the monster. Usually one of these quills would bring instant death to its victim, yet this time a whole barrage of the needle-like weapons only further angers the behemoth. Han Solo's theory, though, is that the energy from the lightsaber of Don Juan is interfering with whatever is inside the creature that creates the energy blasts, like some sort of lightning rod effect. And so the closer it gets to the lightsaber, the crazier the monster's acting. Chewbacca, never one to miss a hint, Kronk? Urk! picks up Han Solo and starts running with his long furry legs toward the monster, quick as they can to try to save the old man. Don Juan doesn't much appreciate it when Han Solo grabs the lightsaber out of his hands, but Han Solo just doesn't think the old man can do what needs to be done. So he takes the lightsaber, runs towards the monster, jumps up and stabs it in the chest. So just to make it clear, 
Han Solo is handling a lightsaber here, which is something I think that he has never done before and very possibly will very rarely do again. In fact, I want to try to remember, because if we get a novel later that says he never handled a lightsaber before, I just, you know, want to make sure that we have our continuity straight here. The energy of the lightsaber starts messing around with the energy inside the beast, and he begins disintegrating from within. We have a huge full-page image of the monster uh, crackling and exploding as Don Juan, Han Solo, and Chewbacca huddle behind a rock for safety in the foreground. It's really, really beautiful. And when the last fading image of the behemoth is swept away by the winds of Aduba 3, all the space misfits take account of each other and realize that they don't yet have their money. The peasants are on their way to pay up, and Jim says, Great, after I get my share, I can finally get off this crummy planet before I totally crack up. And his attention is drawn by the very scantily clad, of course, because she's a 70 space babe, the young Mary has walked up. Hello, Jim. I saw what you did today. You were very brave. B- but you never even looked at me before. That's one of the reasons I... I'm looking now, Jim. And she gives Han a little peck of a cheek to say goodbye for saving the village and also for bringing out the man and the Star Killer kid. So the meager payments are made from the peasant villagers to Han Solo and his space misfits, and they all ride away on Banthas, leaving behind Jim with his newfound love muffin, Mary. So I didn't get the girl. Who cares? She was kind of young anyway. At least now I can afford to get the Millennium Falcon out of Hawk, and if only for a minute, I got a little feeling of what it's like to be a Jedi Knight. And that's where we end our story. So I was right to expect a conclusion. It seemed like there was not really much more it could do. I mean, we had built all the way up to giant god monster coming out of the earth. I mean, what were they going to do to top that at the end of this issue? So next issue, Star Wars continues with the search for Luke Skywalker. I can tell you where Luke Skywalker is. He's on that nameless planet with Leia and the droids over in Pizzazz. Oh, wait. That's the problem with parallel storytelling. Those are not happening at the same time. That already happened by the time this is happening. So, we will continue with this story in two episodes, because next episode we have a book to talk about. Yes, indeed, because it is currently January 1978, and next month is February 1978, which saw the publication of Splinter of the Mind's Eye by Alan Dean Foster. So although you'll be hearing the episode and its regular two-day break from now, it's going to take me actually several days to put that episode together, so I'm going to get started on that tomorrow. But all that, of course, is of no concern to you, and I do hope you will look forward to next episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to send What am I doing? I totally forgot to talk about the letters page. Okay, so Star Words has a huge column from Roy Thomas where he's apologizing for the fact that he is, in fact, leaving the comic with this issue. He has written the series from the first issue. He actually got the contract from Lucasfilm in the first place or whatever George Lucas was calling his company at the time. But he is leaving the comic now. And Howard Chaykin is, in fact, going with him. Howard Chaykin did help with the art in this issue, but as I discussed at the beginning, the art was a lot more, um, it had a lot more hands involved than usual, and it's probably because Howard Chaykin just didn't want to put on all the effort to do the issue. Um, As a result, I actually really enjoyed the art in this issue, more so than I have been doing. But, you know, that's as it may be. 
Why are they leaving? Well, Howie wants to go work on other types of art, including some painting. He's going to be doing the Savage Sword of Conan. And Roy Thomas decided that space opera just wasn't really his bag. He enjoys the genre, but he figured leaving the book in other hands would actually be doing the, the, the story and the readers a favor. I think possibly somebody complained about the walking green rabbit. There is, a, there is a story in Star Wars fandom land that George Lucas saw the Green Rabbit and never had a good thing to say about the Marvel Comics again after that. So there might be some, some bad blood about, about the choices made in this particular arc. So Roy Thomas does have other projects, though, in his future, including a certain Gold Trust Thunder God played by the very sexy Chris Hemsworth in your local theaters last summer. He does mention in passing, however, that Star Wars the comic book is a virtual phenomenon, easily the most published four-color comic in at least 20 years and then some. It's worth pointing out at this point that in the mid to late 70s, Marvel Comics in particular, and I think possibly the comics industry in general, was not doing nearly as well as it had been doing in the 50s, whenever comics were easily selling hundreds of thousands of copies, and even close to the millions sometimes. Star Wars, as a series, put Marvel back in the black again comfortably, without really much worry for a while about their income. Uh, They had had a similar boost from Conan a few years earlier, but it wasn't as big. The the Star Wars comic kept Marvel from going bankrupt in the 70s. They ended up going bankrupt in the 90s, but that's a whole other story. And before Roy Thomas goes, he does mention the error that I mentioned a few episodes ago whenever Han Solo's talking about heading out to Tatooine, or he's remembering Tatooine or something. He calls it Dantooine in one panel and Tatooine in another. Actually, Roy Thomas says that he had written Dantooine in both places. He had called in to fix the error, but whenever they fixed the error, they only fixed it once. They didn't fix it twice. So that's just the stories of comics, I guess. Now moving on to the actual letters, Mike Heisler writes in to praise the final installment of the Star Wars film adaptation, suggesting that Han Solo get his own (laughs) Solo magazine. Burton Glass is asking for annuals, which we do eventually get. Rod Richards says that for going on past the movie, Marvel Comics, you're braver than I thought. Pammy Bowen has seen the film six times, having to stand in line several times to do that, and loves being able to enjoy the film in her own home now, thanks to the comic adaptation. And Nancy Porter closes us out with a happy and sad comment. She just purchased the latest issue of Star Wars, loved it dearly, and is very sad that she has missed the previous issues, which of course gives Marvel the chance to promote the fact that the entire series has been collected in two Treasury editions and in the black and white paperback that we have talked about on previous episodes. And they sneak in a little mention of the Pizzazz magazine as well, which also includes three pages of Star Wars Madness each and every month. I've been saying four pages. Never actually counted. I assumed it was four. I guess I'm wrong. It's only three. And that brings us to the end of the issue and the end of the episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to send emails, I'll read emails on the air in special email episodes. You can send those to thestarwarssagacast at gmail.com. If you just happen across this episode somewhere randomly, more episodes will be found at thestarwarssagacast.com or on iTunes under the Star Wars Saga Cast. 
So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, my name is John Wilson. Thank you very much for listening to the Star Wars Saga cast and good night.